as you all know, this season of Desert Island Dishes is sponsored by Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches and their iconic yellow boxes have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years. My kitchen is never without a box. They are just the easiest and most eco-friendly way to light everything from stoves and barbecues to candles. And I wanted to tell you about a brand new competition that they've just launched where they're giving you the chance to win two tickets to the BBC's Winter Good Food Show, including seats in the big kitchen to see Tom Carriage's cooking demo. The competition is running on Facebook and Twitter, and it's really easy to enter. All you have to do is reply to the post with a picture of your best pumpkin carving. Then follow Cook's Matches on the platform that you're entering on and like the post. The competition will be running until the 2nd of November, so you have until then. Good luck. To find out more, head to the website www.cooksmatches.co.uk. Good luck to everyone. And thank you again to Cook's Matches for sponsoring this season of the podcast and helping me to bring it to you each week. Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I hope you're all well and that you're having a lovely week. I can't believe it, but we've come to the end of this current season of Desert Island Dishes. The last eight weeks have seen some brilliant guests cast away to the island with very full bellies. And I think, given the past 18 months, most people have been really happy at the idea of a holiday on the Desert Island. I know I am. Can you imagine? There will be a slight hiatus as I take a break to go and have a baby. <laughs> But don't worry, we will be back with the next season very soon as I've been beavering away recording the next season as we've gone along. And let me tell you, we have some amazing guests coming up to look forward to. I'm so happy to tell you that this particular episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Bordeaux Wines. We all know that food and wine is a match made in heaven and as classic as bread and butter, Bonnie and Clyde, bacon and eggs. <laughs> you also probably know that Bordeaux has built its reputation on its reds. But did you know that Bordeaux also produces lighter, fresher, affordable, but equally delicious styles of wine, including dry whites, refreshing rosés, and even sparkling wines? Whatever the budget or occasion, there really is something for everyone with Bordeaux. Why not enjoy a glass of rosé with friends, something I can't wait to do, <laughs> or just relax with a chilled glass of white after work. My personal favourite from Bordeaux is the sparkling cremant, and I love their fruit-forward reds as well. And I have to say, there's a great range of prices, so they offer exceptional value for money too. So thank you very much to Bordeaux for sponsoring this episode of Desert Island Dishes. And don't forget to head over to social media where you can find out more by following Bordeaux Wines at Bordeaux Wines UK. And now on to today's episode, which I hope you enjoy. My guest today is James Martin. James has been a mainstay on our TV screens since the mid-1990s. 
It's safe to say that Saturday mornings wouldn't be the same without him, with his hugely popular shows on the BBC Saturday Kitchen and now Saturday mornings with James Martin on ITV. He appeared on The Big Breakfast, but it was arguably his role on Ready, Steady, Cook, a show that changed food television, that catapulted him to the kind of fame usually reserved for boy bands. At its peak, 15 million people were tuning in to watch the show on Friday evenings, and Martin, with his trademark bandana and youthful good looks, was a firm fan favourite. But this was not a story of overnight success. It was built on years of hard work and perfecting his craft. James grew up on a farm in North Yorkshire where hard graft was part of daily life from a young age. At the age of eight, he was working in restaurants. And by the time he was 12, he had a catering company catering weddings. It's no surprise then that by the age of 21, he achieved the covetable role of head chef at Hotel and Bistro de Vat in Winchester. Alongside this, he's written countless cookbooks. He set up a cookery school, run restaurants all over the world gained his pilot's license and has an envy-inducing collection of vintage cars. This year, he won the Fortnum & Mason Personality of the Year Award as voted for by the public. When James was just seven, he told his family he would be head chef by the age of 30, drive a Ferrari when he was 35 and own his own restaurant by 40. And whilst his granddad told him to be quiet and get a proper bleeding job, As it turned out, he made head chef at the age of 21, bought a Ferrari three years later and opened his own bistro when he was 26. James has said, those dreams were odd then. It was a bit like Billy Elliot, unheard of, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And that was that. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that. (laughs) It's 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 like a story of my life in miniature. It was actually really hard writing that introduction because your career has spanned such a long length of time and not implying anything about your age, but simply because you started so young. Yeah, crammed a lot in. Seemed to have crammed a lot in. Yeah, but it, I did. I just got. I, I started cooking when I was a young kid, like a lot of lot of young keen chefs do. But um, yeah, I was quite fortunate. I had great great grandparents and great parents who were great cooks. None of them were chefs, but that's how I that's how I kind of naturally fell into the kitchen. Really, it seems to me that your childhood really instilled in you the importance of hard work from a really young age. And whilst everyone acknowledges that working in restaurants is really tough, I think you've said that actually compared to the hard work that you had to do on the farm, it didn't actually seem that bad. No, I mean, I I keep saying to the chefs, my mates are chefs and and they go, oh, it's hard work today. I went, you want to be hard work? Go be a a sheep farmer. Go do sheep farming in in, in the the Welsh hills and the Welsh valleys. That's proper hard work. Go be a a farmer in the the north of Scotland. That's proper hard work. And and I think, uh, you know, we've got the comfort of chefs. We've got food brought to us. We apply the application of heat. In many cases, not even that. We serve our customers. But yes, it's it's long hours. But hard work. There are a lot more harder work jobs out there for sure. And I and I kind of valued that principle when I was a young kid. That I thought I look back and that no matter how hard the day was at work, it's not as hard as it was working on the farm. Uh, and I know that's not a it's not an excuse, but but it, you get great value from both 
in life. Um, and that wasn't financial value. That's not, not the reason why anybody goes into being a chef. And it certainly wasn't where I was when I started and, and been a farmer, the same thing that the financial value is not the, not the reason why you go into it. You go into it because you love it. And so what kind of work were you doing on the farm? What kind of farm was it? Well, we were pig farmers. We used to muck out the pigs before we went to school. So the whole classroom spent uh, smelt of pig muck at, at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you must have and been very finished, popular. <laughs> uh, no, everybody else was the same. Everybody in my classroom was the same thing. So, you know, half the class were farmers because I was brought up in a, quite a rural area. And then when we finished school, you'd go home, you'd get um, half an hour to do your homework. And then it would be back feeding and, and back sorting out the pigs or whatever it was dairy or whatever it was people would be busy it was just it was just a natural process there was always things to do uh, and there was always things to do outside um but there was there was always things to do and i think you get a better understanding of being a chef later on in life i think you learn to respect food a lot more and i keep saying to this to the young chefs that i've got in the kitchen the reason why i've got a a veg garden outside is uh, I want to appreciate how difficult it is to produce food because it's only then you will appreciate food in general but more importantly you'll appreciate and support and respect the people who produce that food for you you know we're so lucky in the UK that we're very much a grab and go we don't really think about it and I think that's been our problem and it looking through COVID land and everything else that's happening now and the topics of supplies and everything else, well, we're kind of our own victim, really, because we've kind of ignored the producer and we've ignored what value that they bring to the economy. And I think we, in an hour, now we're all moaning that you can't get stuff because it's not on our shelf. Well, it's your own fault for relying on a supermarket. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're right. There's been such a disconnect between where the food comes from and, and what we're actually putting on our plates. Yeah, your grand your grandparents would queue up outside of butchers. They would queue outside a veg shop. You do that in France. You don't have the supermarkets problem in France that we have. Uh, you know, all the all the villages and towns and cities in France have artisan producers. We've lost all those, and it's our own fault. It, you know, that's not coming back. So if anything from a chef, really, and it's on my watch that I've seen that happen, if all I can do is just, you know, fly the flag for the producers and say, look, this is amazing, we need to buy this, I've done my little bit, you know, to help. But to, you can't just ignore that as a consumer and then moan about stuff further on when you can't get things in the supermarket, like toilet rolls and stuff like that. You say that there's no going back. Do you think that's true? Like, do you think there's no way that we can sort of go back to that way of living? Do you think we're sort of stuck in the... No, not, not at all, because there's no way back from it. Because a lot of these butchers and, and fishmongers, particularly butchers particularly, have been doing it for years. Uh, and, and they've got so much history there, so much tradition. If I suddenly said to you, like, right, we're going to open a shop and you're going to open a butchery, people would just laugh at you now. I think a lot of those are family family traditions. And that goes to farmers as well you know a lot of the farms in around and about where i've been recently wales and scotland a lot of these farms and small farmers and the beautiful countryside that you see in wales is all maintained by people who are passionate about what they do they're not doing it for the latest range rover they're not doing it to to go on holiday to the maldives they're doing it because they've been given that farm by their family maybe a tenant farm in a lot of cases it is a tenant farm and they're getting up at ridiculous hours to, to produce lamb and produce 
milk and produce cheese and produce whatever they're producing for very little money because the market's moving and shaking all over the place, you know. I know, those heartbreaking images of all the milk being poured away. Yeah, I mean, that's but it's happening on a daily basis. You know, that's still happening now, and it's it's happening with producers and stuff like that all over the UK. But I think we need a little bit more respect for the producers that produce our food. And I think if you look at the French, the way they look at the food, if you look at the way that the Spanish look at the food, the Italians, obviously, it's given the Italians think the same. In the UK, we love our food, but I just think there is a disconnection between where it comes from. Yeah. Being such a recognisable face on TV, would it be frustrating to you for people to not know or not acknowledge the years of hard work that went into making you a chef first and foremost before the presenting side of things? Not really. I think I think if there's people like that, I don't really want to speak to them anyway. Um, I don't. You know, do, do you know what I mean? I, I, I kind of I've been very honest, and that's probably my roots, probably my my upbringing. I think I think I've always been honest with people. I think the younger generation haven't seen, you know, I mean, I've taken, I've got two young, young chefs in the kitchen, a, a girl and a, and a guy who, who, who was eight, 19 years old. I mean, I was, what was I doing? 30 years old. Eh? I mean, you know, you've got to remember that I'm, I'm nearly oh, well over twice their age. So they, they've only seen me on certain TV shows, not, all the stuff I've done before. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It just happens to be a generation thing. And it's just, I'm quite happy to be teaching my knowledge to the younger generation now. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where people might look at you from the younger generation and, yeah, I guess assume maybe it was sort of an overnight success scenario. <laughs> as, as we discussed in the introduction, like obviously that is so far from the case. And I think maybe there's a danger with people aspiring for something without realising the amount of work that went into getting to that point. I was chatting to Giles Corrin, the food critic, the other day, and he said the same thing. I'm I'm kind of the last breed of the celebrity chefs before there were celebrity chefs, if that makes sense. Totally. So now it's all about Instagram. It's all about followers. It's all about posting dishes about food. It was never about that. When I put a chef's jacket on when I was a young kid, age eight years old, I I did it because I fell in love with it. And I still love it as much, if not more, than I did when I was a young kid. So... My career's morphed and it's more, it's morphed and it's changed, but there's one ethos that's not changed and that's the love of food. And that becomes top priority and the quality of the ingredients that I like to cook with. That's what I like. And, and you can have as many trends if you want. Trends can come and go a bit like chefs and fashionable and whatever's trendy one minute. I've never done that. I've always stuck by my guns and cooked food that hopefully I, I like to cook at home. And that's the stuff that viewers like to watch because I just nothing better than a pork chop under the grill with a with a nice little bit of slob, uh, slob slab of um, apple sauce on the top beautiful talking my kind of language James <laughs> yeah let's dive into the first desert island dish and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood a bacon sandwich there's no question my granny's bacon sandwich she used to cook it on an old enamel grill the ones with the gas knobs on it I've got it at home in my house and when she passed away that's the bit that I wanted and I've got her old enamel grill and it's a bacon she used to queue up at Scott's Butchers which is now gone uh, multi-generational butchers in York and she used to get the best bacon put it under the grill and then she used to go at M&S and squeeze every single loaf of bread to find the softest and, and and butter it so much with butter. And she used to butter it so much, the butter used to go to the other side of the bread. 
And I used to sit there and have a bacon sandwich. It was one of the finest things I've ever eaten in my life. And she used to serve it on a, on a plate with a doily because she used to have a little a little posh doily. And I always remember it with a with a little paper napkin, sat there watching TV with a little – my granny didn't have anything. She had nothing, and she's living in a little terraced house in York. But um, she had a little dog called Tuppence, this little um, little Yorkshire terrier used to sit there looking at you with its eyes looking at you, expecting for a little bit of this bacon to drop. It was <laughs> never going to happen, but – yeah, that that would be my favourite. Dream on tuppence. That was never going to happen. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think we need to bring the doily back. Doily is in distant memory. Yeah, it's, it has a time and a place, and that's probably Betty's Tea Rooms in York, yes. maybe. Oh, yes, that that one. Yeah, yeah. that that one. But yeah, it's, it's a particular place and a particular time for stuff like that. That it's a bit like fish and chips. You can't just eat them all the time. You've got to be in the right place. And not just mentally, but in the right place physically. You can't just have it anywhere. It's not the same. Yeah, no, that's true. Your passion for food began, I believe, when your father started working as a catering manager at the Castle Howard estate. You were working in restaurants at the age of eight, and by 12, you had your own catering company doing the food for weddings. Tell us a little bit about that time, because that's amazing. <laughs> well, first of all, it put you off weddings for the rest of your life, age <laughs> just 12, uh, with people arguing arguing before they even got the, got to the wedding. Oh, um, no. <laughs> policeman, he was a, as a publican and, and sort of fell into the sort of catering side of it. Not a trained chef, but I think uh, he taught me the value of business and and that's working on the farm as well that you produce stuff you have to sell it uh, you have to make the profit and that profit goes back into the business and you and you keep reinvesting and you keep building it up and building it up and I think the same thing when I set up this little catering business and I used to get asked a lot could would I do cakes would I do this would I do that and my dad said yeah do it but you're not buying stuff and then doing it and, and not earning anything because that's your pocket money. So I knew that if I bought a chicken for five quid, I had to sell it for a tenner. And that five quid was the work that I did to make into something that's edible. And so I learned that value. And, and, I, and I always remember that catering for weddings and, and stuff like that. There were not massive weddings, but, but there were small weddings. But that was the same sort of ethos. I mean, those are the kind of lessons that really we should be learning at school, aren't they? <laughs> well, I, I failed every single exam at school. I failed cookery at school and I failed maths and English. But we had this thing called a school called Life Skills. Uh, people said it was the, the thicker section of English, which was ridiculous. Because we did, a, we did a, a school reunion about 20 years ago. The best cars in the car park were the that were in that life skills class trust me because they learned the value of they, they learned the value of 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 life and 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 filling in forms and doing bits and pieces you know hamlet is a wonderful wonderful is a wonderful chap i'm sure he's fantastic but it's no good to my career so i wasn't interested in it and i think dyslexia was the same i'm in a way i'm glad i'm dyslexic because it focused my mind on stuff that i was good at from a young age I was 35, but certainly because of that made me a better chef because it focused my mind into stuff that I was interested in. And I, I know you've, you've said you weren't very academic at school, but I'm wondering, did you excel in things like drama? Because I'm just wondering about the sort of presenting side of your career. No, I was, I, I was, the, I was the first to, uh, I got, we, we did, a, we did a, um, a nativity play and I, and I was so bad that I got put on lighting, no. which was two switches. <laughs> Um, I, I would never do that. If anybody said, I was always the quiet person in the back, at the back. I was never a sporty person. I was never front and center. Drama was, no, I would never do anything like that. 
I would always stand in the background. And I only did TV because somebody said, won't you want it? Do it. It was, But back then, there was only real three or four channels on TV. And um, live, no training whatsoever, with Chris Evans and Gabby Roslin, the big breakfast. There you go. Speaking to that camera at the same time. And I could just cook. I could just, I just found cooking easy and, and talking and cooking, I just found even easier. And it was just so I happened to be a camera stuffed in my face. People watched it. That was it. That was it. it was no, there was no classroom for it. And I, still to this day, we get people who, who come on the show and they try, they test all the recipes. They, they're reading through what they're doing in their mind. And what are you doing? Uh, I've never rehearsed a single dish in 15 years of television. Really? Not one. All they've done, all the stuff I've done for the last 10 years, the first time I cook it is the first time you see it. Wow. I have no backup. I have no backup. I haven't rehearsed it. I haven't done it before. We're filming all this week, and I'm probably doing 35 dishes this week, and I've never cooked any of them. Have you ever had any on-air disasters? Yeah, but that's fun, isn't it? Yeah, that's fun. It's, 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 it's life at home, isn't it? it? Life would be boring if it was perfect. There's no such thing as perfection. There's none. We all strive from it, but, you know, you just got to do your best each time. Yeah, and I think that's probably what resonates so well with people, because if you're scared of getting in the kitchen, it's because you're scared of it not being perfect, and really that just doesn't matter at all. No, it's all about having a go. It's it's like anything in life. You know, you, you're on this planet for such a short period of time that you've got to enjoy everything you do and, and enjoy your job that you do. There's so many people doing jobs that they don't like, and I can't understand it. I, I can't understand it at all. There's, to me, there's nothing better. My goal was to open a restaurant and to be stood in the kitchen like I was last night and to be cooking on the hot pass with, with my team behind me and my team in front of me and seeing customers enjoy themselves. It's one of the best enjoyments in the world. It's what I, it's what I worked so hard to achieve. Yeah, it's what you dreamt about. Yeah. Let's talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Eggs, a boiled egg, the perfect boiled egg. It's quite tricky. Six minutes, six and a half minutes into ice cold water. And then obviously then into the poached eggs and that kind of stuff. But that was the first thing I learned to cook properly, I think. And how old do you think you were? Nine, maybe eight, nine, something along that lines. When I was working in restaurants, uh, I worked at a place called the Malian Spout in Gothland, which was, uh, they did a gourmet dinner and Brian Turner was there. And there was a, there was a, a soft poached egg. And I remember doing hundreds of them to get them right. And I was only, I can't have been any more than nine. Wow. But yeah, that's. Yeah, my first experience of celeb chefs, but also the first experience of, of cooking in the kitchen. You left school with, as you say, no qualifications and headed to catering college in Scarborough. And there it sounds like you really excelled. You were student of the year, three years running. There was a tutor there who spotted your potential. And that seemed like a big turning point. Yeah, I think everybody has a turning point in their lives. And mine was then, it was really where I, I worked with somebody that could hone your skills, that somebody saw potential in you and I think everybody needs that in terms of what they do in terms of your job or in terms of your work life whatever it is it's it's that one moment where you you either step through the door or you don't and and a lot of people 90% of the people don't step through the door but I did I I, I jumped at the chance and um yeah Ken Allison was an amazing lecturer and still alive and and, and uh, but just an amazing chap and, uh, and trained so many great chefs in front of me and, and behind me through the through the college and um 
I owe him a lot in my industry and a lot of my lot in my job. And since then, you meet people along the way. But certainly, he was one of them. And you know, most recently, it was probably Michel Roussini, which we sadly lost about two years ago. He was a great influence in my life, a great friend. Uh, I met him 25 years ago, and his ethos in terms of what he did and the way that they portray themselves, life in general, but the way that they respect food and yeah, and the industry, it's, it's, uh, it, yeah, I value that. At the end of the course, you chose to go and work for Anthony Worrell Thompson. You headed to London and the story goes that you had just £50 in your pocket. London was a place that you'd only been twice before. I think you were 18 at the time. I mean, obviously, that must have been very exciting, but I can imagine also pretty daunting. Yeah, pretty surreal. I didn't realise that a taxi was going to cost you 20 quid of that 50 quid, just getting, <laughs> off, getting, off, the, getting off the bloody train. Um, but it was a, it was an amazing experience and one that I that I'm so glad I did. Um, I treasure it. I mean, London's a different place now to what it was in the early '80s. There was there was not many places to work back then in in conjunction with what they are now. But it was it was a fascinating place and one that I I, I value. It was a a really interesting time because I never really saw daylight. I, I didn't see anybody anything. I, I didn't see home. I didn't see anything for three years. Just head down graft. And I took every opportunity that came my way. I, I remember been working for Anthony on, on the Monday. I mean, left college on the Friday. And uh, I got introduced to the pastry chef, a guy called Seb, on the, on the Monday morning. By Tuesday lunchtime, he disappeared off to the toilet and I never saw him again. What? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. And, and I was then pastry chef in the afternoon. That was it, Matt. I was, I was 48 hours into, into my job and now I was running a section. Oh, my goodness. And you, now you learn in London, you used to learn back then, you used to, when somebody you said to go to the loo, to check to see, you'd check to see if their knife kit was still under the bench, otherwise you'd never see them again either. But that was London, it was such a transient time as chefs. And still is, I suppose, now, but very different back then. And I've heard stories of you sleeping on your pastry slab when you finished work at 2am and there just wasn't any point in going home before you had to start again. And also that you, you broke your collarbone and two ribs in a fight over tomatoes. And I'd love to know more about that fight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm six foot three and 17 stone. So, yeah, it, when, you, when you're going against another person who's similar sort of size... Um, <laughs> somebody's going to end up worse off and I ended up being worse off but it was all over two tomatoes it was a ridiculous thing but the pressure at the moment pressure at that time and you're young and yeah you, you when you're young you do stupid things and when you uh, when you're older you learn from those stupid things the, the key to it is learning from them and um yeah it was a rude awakening yeah never to throw things at a bigger guy than what you were yeah <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> let's talk about the third desert island dish and that's the best dish you've ever eaten it was probably recently, it was at a place called Inesia. Gareth Ward is the chef there. It's in Wales. I think it's the best meal I've ever eaten in the UK. One of the best meals I've ever eaten in my life. And um, it's 31 courses consecutively. Whoa. All small dishes, but one after another. And um, it just this, it just several courses, one after another. But it does this curry, the green Thai curry. I've never tasted anything like it in my life. Never tasted anything like it ever again until you go back up there. But yeah, I was just thinking about him actually today. I'm, I'm gonna, the, sh the chefs do these things called a stage. And usually when you're younger, you work in different rest restaurants and you work there for nothing just to experience what it's like. And I just thought about that today. Thought about actually, funny enough, before I spoke to you, thought about that meal 
And um, I thought, I'm going to do a stage next year. So I've texted him. I text him, I'm actually going to go up there and work in his kitchen for nothing for three to four days and just work alongside him. I was so impressed with it. And I think he said, oh, yeah, mate, it'd be amazing to see what the customer's reaction is. I said, I'm not doing it for that. I just want to come and work side by side with you. And it's just... James, I think you secretly want the recipe to that dish. He's not going to give you it. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to go out and spend five days in Wales and and have a team of twenty chefs behind you. But it's yeah, it was one, it was fantastic. Yeah, an amazing place to go and visit. And if you're ever in the area, go and eat there. It's spectacular. Yeah, well, well I think that's amazing that you're going to go and do a stage. That's a very cool thing. The story goes that you were sick of being broke in London, so you got a job at the glamorous Tewton Glen before moving to the Hotel de Vare in Winchester, where you became head chef at the age of 21. I think even now, given everything that's happened in your career, you still describe that as your biggest achievement to date. Yeah, because everything in your life before it was building up to it. It's everything you ever dreamed about. It's not a financial thing. It's not, it's not a big house. It was never about, oh, I'm going to take this job because then I can afford this. It was ne- it was, there was none of that. It's everything I ever wanted. And it paid back everything I've ever got. So I, I, I think looking at it, would you change it? No, would I? Uh, anything. I, it was the perfect moment. The, uh, it kind of suited my position, but it was kind of surreal how it happened. It was, we interviewed five head chefs from London. I was originally the, the sous chef to get the job and I was still working at Chicken Glen at the time. And there's a guy called Pierre Cheviard and the, the owners of the hotel were in this, in this chef's office and they were tasting all the food from these five chefs that came every day, Monday to Friday. We worked in the afternoon to, to develop a recipe using what was on this trolley. And then hopefully at the end of that week, they would pick their head chef to work with me as the sous chef. And, uh, the guy didn't turn up on the Friday. And Pierre Cheviard, the head chef, turned around and said, just give me a second. And he came up to me and he said, just just cook us something using these, whatever you want from this trolley. Just cook us lunch. So I just did this dish and I served it to them in the office and, and talking about where I'd worked. And as I disappeared, Pierre told me later and he said, I turned around to the guys who tasted it. They put the knife and fork down and I said, you've got the head chef. He's 10 metres away from you. Wow. That's amazing. That was it. That's how it worked. And you said just before that, you know, getting that job was everything that you ever dreamed of. What was the reality like? Because so often you hear about people dreaming, <laughs> dreaming these dreams, but, but the reality of actually living that dream, was it, was it what you expected? Yeah, everything that I expected. Uh, graft, work, passion, uh, frustration, everything, everything, everything all accumulated in one. Did I have the experience? No. Did I have the drive of passion? Yes. Was I prepared for it? No. Did you step up to it? Yes. So, so there's wherever there was a negative, there was a positive. But you took that and you worked with it and ran with it, and you were too busy to think about anything else. So you know, we were quite fortunate. We were f- fully booked every single day. So I didn't really have time to think about doing something different. You just grab hold of it and run with it. Yeah, and you were only twenty-one, which is, you know, even even younger than than what your ambition was. Yeah, I was, but I was lucky. I was uh, lucky, but you make your own luck in this job. And you know, there's, uh, I say, all the chefs will tell you there's there's no BS in this world. Uh, you can either do it or you can't, and you're judged on a daily basis by what you produce. And some people are great at it. Some people are their best at it. That they, they get three star Michelin, but there are also 
wherever there's one person with three star Michelins, there's hundred thousand people out there that are still working in amazing cafes, in in kebab shops, in fish and chip shops, wherever it is, but they're producing food for us to consume and they should be treated exactly the same as everybody else. And that's a lesson you learn in terms of my job, going, am I good enough to achieve that? No, I'm not. So how can I be the best of what I can be? And that's where I sort of changed my track at that moment in time and, and decided to do the brasserie sort of thing, which, which really worked. There are so many different ways to be passionate about food and to sort of fulfill that as a career. It doesn't always have to look a certain way. Yeah, because if I was going to, if I was going to, at the Hotel of Anna, if we were going to go Michelin star food, it would never work. And also, I probably wouldn't be here. I'd probably, to be honest with you, I'd probably be dead uh, because I would have worked myself in such a situation that I, well, I, mentally and physically, I, I wouldn't have been around because I probably would have had to start. But you kind of change tack and you look at going, right, I'm really good at this. I'm really good at seasoning and flavors and cooking. Why don't I strip everything back and go there and and it worked yeah it's it was like you say it's a learning curve let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish what is your favorite sandwich bacon sandwich that i said to you about my childhood it's still to this day still to this day scott's butchers is gone but i try and get the best bacon i can cook it on white sliced bread with butter on it with tomatoes from my greenhouse Best food you'll ever eat in your life. I was going to say, so you don't go ketchup, you go fresh tomatoes. No, no, fresh tomatoes out of my greenhouse. It's, uh, my, my uncle used to have a veg allotment and my granddad, and that's where I learned the value of food and the value of producing your own stuff. And the first thing I did when I bought this house, before the house was actually built, before there was even a house or a piece of grass been laid, I built a greenhouse. Really? Yeah, and the greenhouse is the very, very thing, first thing to be built where I live now. The house was the last, but the greenhouse was the first. Was the car garage second? The car garage was third. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I had nowhere to put my car. So the, the cars lived in the garage before, while I was living in a motorhome in the driveway. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Those are the right priorities. <laughs> I like that, James. <laughs> well, I had to. I had to, get them, I had to get them covered up. That was the, that was the idea. And so I believe your career in TV, it did kind of happen by, by happenstance. You were working in the kitchen and a TV producer spotted you. It kind of sounds like something from a Hollywood movie. It happened like that. Um, she just gave me a card. I put it in my pocket and a genuine reaction went, yeah, thanks very much. I didn't, I didn't respond to it. The phone rang. Have you got an agent? No. Do you know an agent? No. I know an estate agent. I can't afford a house. <laughs> Because I used to live above a Chinese restaurant and an Indian takeaway was my lounge. It was it was a rented flat on, I think it was £25 a week. And I never really stayed there till late because I didn't finish till one, two o'clock in the morning working. I was up at seven. And uh, yeah, I kind of um, fell into the TV land really. And I used to wear a bandana because I, I couldn't afford, I didn't have time to get my hair cut. So I used to wear this bandana. My hair was quite long. I went on to do this pilot, which was this tipping out this bag of ingredients. And that was it, really. It just went from there. Yeah. So, of course, you're referencing Ready, Steady, Cook. And you're going to have to indulge me because I am a huge Ready, Steady, Cook fan. And actually, it's a show that is mentioned quite a lot on Desert Island Dishes because it was so iconic. And I think it taught so many people so much about food and about cooking and being experimental and just having fun in the kitchen. 
and it was it was huge. Yeah, fifteen million on a Friday night. I remember that. Um, I remember you you'd sort of as a when I first started it to sort of check your recipes. You would stop and freeze the page on CFAX. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Uh, and you would you, you, you couldn't do it, and it would go round again. You'd have to wait ten minutes for it to come round on TV again. But these were the days before internet and all that sort of stuff, where the the confirmation used to come through on a on a toilet roll fax. And you get half of it printed out and that kind of stuff. But it was an amazing time. And it was one of those things that when when I when they said they were going to reboot it, and my name was all over the press going, they're all going to be doing it. I went, it's such a shame that it wasn't the old crew doing it. Mm-hmm. Because uh, they tried to redo it. Re- they tried to change it from what it was too much. What it was was a pure and simple format. And that format worked. And then when they started to reboot it, they changed it. And it, it's such a shame. It's just... they. They tried to change it for change's sake, and it didn't need that. Yeah, yeah. Some things don't need changing. It was perfect as it was. No, it's like, it's like you bring back bullseye, you bring back blankety blank. It works because it works. If you start changing it too much, it's not what it is. And and you know, it's great to have things back again. And and people love. I mean, I've just we we bought Spud. You like uh, yes. because we're about about to relaunch that, but. It's iconic. So do you change it? No, you don't change. You change the topping and you change what made it, you know, when it put it, when it was in a situation three years ago where the receivers took over, you look at that and you go, right, what, why did it go into this position? And it went in that position because people took their eye on the ball. They stopped caring. They, you know, people's tastes have changed. People want better quality food. They want better quality toppings. So we looked at that. And so you learn to adapt and, but you still, the ethos is a great baked potato and, and it's, yeah, that's where it should be. Such a good ethos. Who doesn't love a baked potato? But being on on Ready Steady Cook, I mean, it, it was sort of like a a rock star level of fame, and and it really did, you know, change in my in my opinion, it, it sort of changed the landscape of of cookery programs on on the TV. It, yeah, it changed my life overnight, without a shadow of a doubt. It changed my life. Was it literally overnight? Over well, overnight. It was in was in was in three weeks. I remember I remember working at the hotel and not being able to afford a round of drinks at the end of a night's work, because my friends of mine used to invite me down to a pub in, in uh, just down the, down the road, and, and I'd try and get out before last orders, and I'd go down there, and they knew that I didn't have the money to buy them a round of drinks. That's where I was. And then I went from that, within three weeks, I went walking along the road trying to find a bank that would give me a mortgage to buy a house. And one person... Uh, in one, she was. It was a. It was a Bristol and West building site, and I walked in, and this lady was behind the counter. She said, oh, "I love what you do on Ready Steady Cook," and I said, "Well, I love it too." And she said, "I love the food at the hotel." And we, we're talking a hundred yards away from where I've been working for three years, and I said, "I'm trying to buy a house," and she said, "Well, what do you mean?" I said, "Well, I'm, I, I've," I said, "I want a mortgage because I need to start looking for a house." She said, "Well, well, when you find a house, come to us, and we'll see if we can do anything." So I generally I walked out of the. Bristol West, which is on the high street, up the road, uh, there was somebody putting a, a sign in, in Hampton's estate agents, and, it, and I said, can I look at that flat? And she went, yeah, yeah, it's just opposite. And it was directly opposite, which was about 20 yards away from the bridge. I walked in there. We looked at the keys. I said, how much was it? Yes, I'll have it. I walked back down, and she went, what? You've actually <laughs> in an hour. You've got... And I went, yeah, I found one. It's perfect, because it's just 100 yards away from where I worked. And she went, well, yeah, fine. And within... I think within two days, I bought it. Wow. 
And that was all off the back of Ready, Steady, Cook? And that was off the back of what had happened in terms of everything around Ready, Steady, Cook, the hype of the popularity, everything. Because then you've got people asking you to write for magazine articles, everything. It's uh, Nowadays, it's different now. It's all on Instagram and all that sort of stuff nowadays, isn't it? But everything is so free and available now. But back then, it was, it was, it was very, very different. But yeah, it changed my life, yeah. Oh, must have been so exciting. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish, and that is the dish you eat the most often. Fish and chips, if I can do, uh, to try and get good fish and chips. I, I sort of, wherever I, wherever I sort of travel at the moment and wherever I'm working, I try and hunt out the best fish and chip shop. And uh, really good fish and chips is what I, you know, you get a really good fish and chip shop, then it's really, really good. Where's been the best place? Uh, recently, a friend of mine has just opened a place called Shoal in Winchester, which is pretty good. He's a chef. He's, he's doing really well. But I, I still think Whitby is the home of fish and chips. That's what I love. Yeah. I think the the, the magpie and trenches and those ones in Whitby are, are certainly my favourites. Uh, I think Whitby's sort of a mecca for fish and chips. So, yeah, that's been my that's been my overall favourite. And, and what would be your order when you go to the fish and chip shop? One of each and a bag of, bag of, bag of scraps. Ooh, that would yes. be my... Yeah, one of each been been hard hard cod, always large cod, large large cod, large haddock, uh, chips, a uh, large, proper sarsen's vinegar, and yeah, just sit and eat it in in paper on the seafront. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, you can't beat you can't beat it in Whitby. You can't. It said to you in the first place, you got to be in the right place, the right frame of mind, and and yeah, that's my favourite. Your latest book, you've chosen to focus on the comforting superstar of cooking that is butter. To me, this is just the perfect cookbook. And un unless you're intolerant to dairy, I feel like loving butter is a good unifier of people because people love butter. Yeah, and they love it whether you live in this country, whether you live abroad. Um, the French can consume more of it than anybody else. But you just look at it as an ingredient. It's found in every kitchen, length and breadth, India, all over the place. They cook in butter. So it's not one of the things that is stereotypically we eat more of it here than anywhere else. It's not true. It's used as a fundamental part of cooking around the globe and, and it's used in classic French cooking. I was brought up. So it was a, yeah, it's, it's a subject that's very, very well, literally close to my heart, but it's, I, I, I do, I do love it. And, and, and to, to teach people that butter is not just butter. It's, it can vary from farm to farm, uh, country to country, uh, animal to animal. That produces different just because a cow is a cow it doesn't mean to say that the butter at the end of it is going to be the same and and jersey's the prime example of that you know there are recipes such as butter poached lobster truffle butter brioche and chicken with nuja butter which i mean just sounds so incredibly delicious is there a runaway recipe that you're really excited about I think out of everything, the simplicity side of it, to how to make your own butter, really. That was the first recipe in the book. And, uh, and I did it on this morning with Phil and Holly. And, and um, she couldn't believe you can make butter in about five minutes in a machine just with cream and the amount of butter that you get out of it. So I think, I think that's been a, a sort of the, the highlight from it is people's reaction of how easy it is to make your own butter. Yeah, I guess that goes back to our initial conversation about the disconnect with food. And yeah, there probably are a lot of people that didn't know that that's how you make butter. And it's it's exciting to share something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, it's yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things that it's so simple as chefs, we take it for granted, that I think showing people how easy it is to make it, it you almost think about trying to create two things that are too fancy. 
So I, I've tried to look at a big cross-section in the book from baking to, to and not focus too much on baking because that's already the stereotypical thing you can do with butter. So there's actually the, 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 the dessert chapter is probably the smallest chapter in the book. I like that approach. And you've written a lot of cookbooks during your career. And I know that because of your dyslexia, you say that you've never read a book in your life. So it must feel strange to have written so many. You still haven't read a book in my life, really. I think the first, the only book I read probably cover to cover was Peter and Jane, I think. Oh, yeah. Level two, two B. You remember those? That is a classic. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. I, I just don't think I have it. I, I don't, I, I'm not proud of it, but I, it's just, for me, I, it would take up all of my brain cells and they're far better off doing stuff, other things, uh, than focusing my attention on, on a book, which I would have to focus so much. And I'd probably forget the stuff that I've read and after I'd get so frustrated over it. So I, I kind of don't do that. But writing a book's quite a, an interesting thing because I've got a great team around me. So I do a lot of it on a dictaphone, a lot of it on Zoom, a lot of it, you know, down the line, that kind of stuff. And now I've got this latest software you can speak and it writes on the computer screen. Oh, amazing. Which is good. Yeah, that's so good. So, you, yeah, you kind of the modern modern stuff, but the old-fashioned typewriter was the first way of doing it when I started. But nowadays it's changed. Yeah, I would just love to go back in time and tell schoolboy James Martin that one day he was going to have a whole bookshelf of books that he'd written himself because I feel like he'd be kind of amazed. Well, I've got to tell my English teacher that as well. That maybe they might have said something completely different. <laughs> Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. Uh, roast chicken. Roast chicken, roast potatoes, you know, or roast chicken and chips uh, with, a, with a nice green salad. Yeah, really good roast chicken. It's it's one of the joys and, yeah, really proper, proper, yeah, just a roast chicken. Do you have a particular way of cooking your chicken? Ah, I just put a little bit of butter and salt and pepper and just put it in the oven. An hour and 15 minutes, leave, leave it to rest, then carve it all up with some chips and a bit of green salad. It's, you know, the simple, purest forms of flavours. You know, you, you can then put the stuffing with it as well. You can be glamorous and stuff like that. But, yeah, a, a pure, simple roast chicken is one of the one of the delights for a, for a dinner table, isn't it? Yeah. And do you get to throw many dinner parties? Cause... Not at the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm too busy concentrating on potato toppings and bits and pieces at the moment and working in the restaurant. So it's, it's, it's gone from I've been cooking at home every day for eight month, 18 months like a lot of people have now to the restaurants are, are firing up. So it's, it's pretty busy. But this week I'll probably get, I'll probably get an hour or two just to sit and enjoy myself. I might, I might just do a little pan fried bit of chicken or something like that. But the simple things I cook at home. Yeah. On Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? I have a cookbook that Keith Floyd wrote and uh, he signed it for me. And he signed it he, in there is a it's in conjunction with a, an auction lot that I that I bought. Uh, and uh, it comes with a letter of confirmation from his publicist, uh, Keith Floyd, the night before he died, he, he was a great caricaturist. He, he used to do drawings like I do. Uh, most dyslexic people are, are good at drawing, and he was the same. And he draw, drew a picture of himself on a desert island and, spelt, and, and, and put uh, Floyd in who's who. What are they kidding? A chef on a desert island. And he spelt desert dessert. Oh, wow. And I don't think he did it accidentally. And I've got that drawing and, and it sits it's next to the cookbook that I got with it that's signed and his biography that's signed. He can't have signed many because he died sadly quite quickly after that. 
yeah, that's that's my my favourite treasured possession. Yeah. Yeah. What a special thing to have. James, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? Bacon sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there's, a, there's, a, there's a three throughout this thing. The chefs will tell you all manner of different sorts of stuff. It's it's my granny. If I could if I could bring my granny back and my granny could cook for me before I went off to that desert or dessert island, it would be that. It would be her bacon sandwich cooked by her. Scott's bacon, the bread that she's got from M&S, lured pack butter that's been slowly melted over this gas enamel grill, served on a doilied sort of floral plate with tuppence, a little little uh, uh, um, Yorkshire terrier, then, yeah, life would be a happy place. Oh, would your granny make, make you a pudding before you go to the desert island? No, no, the idea is they're so good, these baked sandwiches, you'd have another one. And another one, another one. Yeah, if Gran starts to do a pudding, you wouldn't be able to move afterwards. It's a, <laughs> uh, my granny used to do steam sponge pudding, uh, sp- steam sponge sponges, and stuff like that. You you couldn't walk afterwards, but yeah. James, thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes. It's a pleasure. So there we have it, another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you have enjoyed listening and felt like leaving a review, that would really make my day. But no pressure. I know what it's like. <laughs> if you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to our season sponsor, Cook's Matches and to Bordeaux Wines for sponsoring this special episode of Desert Island Dishes. See you on the other side. (laughs) Bye.